Uh, good morning. Welcome to Willingdon. As we continue in our, in our Vision 2020 series, which is in the book of Revelation. So you can turn to the last book of the Bible, uh, chapter 7, or in your pew Bible, it's page 1031. As we begin uh, looking at chapter 7, uh, I was reflecting on the fact that, at, uh, you know, as Revelation is talking about the end of the age, the end of history. And so many movies, if you've noticed, that, ha- that are focused on the end of the age, uh, we would call them apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic movies, they're all bad news. I don't know if you ever noticed that, if you ever watched them or watched the trailers for them. Like in every one of them, it's disasters, it's earthquakes, it's floods, it's either a complete ice age or it's scorched earth or nuclear holocaust or people are killing each other trying to fight over the resources that are left. Uh, And lately, the last decade or so, it's always zombies. I don't know why, but they've always got zombies now. Uh, That's the latest thing. You know, you have to be protected from the zombies because some uh, some virus, maybe appropriately, uh, made them into zombies is what seems to be happening. And so there's this great fear around the end of the around the end of the world. And often with Christians, there's been a great fear around the end of the world too, and God's judgment on the earth. And I know when I was a kid. Uh, so I grew up uh, junior high, senior high. That was the 1970s. And I'll let you do the math on my age. Uh, I won't help you. And when I was about 13 or 14 years old, there was a movie that came out a few years before that called A Thief in the Night. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Uh, and it was a movie about the end of the world. And so I remember going to see it, and it absolutely terrified me. And there's a scene, I can still remember an image in my head to this day because Christians were getting persecuted because they've been left behind and there was a guillotine. If you know what a guillotine is, remember the French Revolution. Uh, There was a scene with a guillotine. And at the end of the movie, it was, you know, a church or somebody had put this movie on, rented the theater, and there was an altar call, come forward if you want to accept Jesus. I think I ran down the aisle. And it literally scared the hell out of me. And what I mean by that is I got so terrified of going to hell that I ran forward. I didn't know who Jesus was. Like It wasn't like I want to follow Jesus or I'm so glad he, he forgives my sin or, or that he wants a person. It was none of that. It was just I'm terrified. And I don't want whatever that movie is. Now the problem is when you do that, when you're 13 or 14 years old and you're totally based on fear, it lasts four to six weeks. Because then by then you've forgotten everything you've seen. Right? But that age it's all gone. And I went back to whatever, however I was living, and I didn't become a Christ follower till, uh, till I was 18. But so often there's this fear. And the thing is, I didn't know who Jesus was in terms of personal relation. I didn't know what the Bible said. I didn't understand the book of Revelation. All I understood was fear. And when you look at what God says in his word, there is no reason to fear. And as you listen today, and as you walk out of here today, my goal is that you will walk out with hope if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that it will encourage you, it will motivate you to walk into a relationship with Jesus because he loves you. So that's the goal for today. Last week, Pastor Ray did a great job 
of, of uh, Revelation chapter 6. Not an easy chapter to preach on. It talks about the six seals, which talks about the wrath of God and explaining that. And after the fifth seal was opened, if you remember uh, what Pastor Ray talked about, that all those who have been martyred because they have ex- extolled the name of Jesus, because they were proclaiming Christ, they're saying, how long do we wait until there is justice? And then in, in verse, uh, or rather in uh, the sixth seal, is the justice of God being poured out on the world. And it's a scene of cosmic upheaval on the great day of wrath, the wrath of Christ. And then ver- Revelation 6 verses 15 to 17 say this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And then it ends with this, who can stand? That's the big question of Revelation chapter 6. Who will make it through? Is the big question that we were left with last week. And chapter 7 now answers the question of who can stand who will remain faithful during this difficult time who will not deny Christ when following him becomes increasingly difficult Revelation chapter 7 verses 2 and 3 then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads so who can stand the people sealed by God can stand that's what that tells us the people sealed by God can stand well that's great news but who are the people sealed by God right the answer gates more questions Who are the people sealed by God? And what does it mean to be sealed by God? Well, John, when he is writing this, and he's writing this to Jewish people, so they would always have what we would call the Old Testament as the backdrop to anything that he writes because they study the scriptures. And so when he talks in these metaphors, then it's always alluding back to pictures that they would understand from the Old Testament. So they know that in the book of Ezekiel, there were people who were sealed. They had the mark of God on them that saved them from God's uh, judgment. We know in Exodus, prior to the people leaving Egypt, that their homes were marked. They were sealed by God, by the blood of the Lamb, uh, prior to the angel of death coming through. And so they would look back to those images. So they know when someone is sealed... It assures them that God's wrath, that God's judgment is not indiscriminate. That God is very intentional in what he is doing. And there's a distinction between those who follow God and those who do not. So as they're listening, as they're reading this letter that John wrote, they're thinking back to these images. Daryl Johnson, who's a Vancouver pastor, wrote a commentary on um, Revelation, said... The seal protects them and us from the ultimate consequence of the breaking of the seals and the scroll and from the ultimate consequences of the blowing of the seven trumpets and the pouring out of the seven bowls, which is chapter 8, which you'll hear about next week. 
What are the consequences? The consequences are judgment along with others who have rejected God. Right? The consequences are for those who have rejected God is what he's talking about. But, and this is very important in this morning's message, being sealed does not mean that God's people do not experience tribulation. Being sealed does not mean that God's people do not experience tribulation. That is not what they and we are sealed from. We know in the Bible it talks about there are martyrs yet to come. And we know there will still be martyrs in our day and age. There are martyrs yet to come is what he is talking about. Another commentator by the name of Beale said, the divine seal and name empower the saints, right, those who follow Jesus, to remain loyal to Christ and not to compromise in the midst of pressures to do so by the identification with the idolatrous world system. So what's the idolatrous world system? It is any system, whether it's in their day or our day, that says, you should listen to us, not to God. That's an idolatrous world system. It's any government, it's any system that says, you can believe in Jesus as long as you are subject to our values, our distinctions, our governing. That's an idolatrous world system. For them it was Rome, because Rome said Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, Caesar is Lord, and you have to worship Caesar. We have various countries today that say, well, you can be a Christian, but you have to subject your beliefs and your teaching and everything to the government. It's an idolatrous world system. Anything that lifts itself above the name of Christ. And so they knew from Ezekiel and they knew from Exodus that people were protected when they followed Jesus. So what does it mean to be sealed? What's that imagery that uh, that John is writing about. Well, in the first century, slaves were sealed, and often it was a mark on their forehead that was there by the person who owned them, or sometimes it was a, a mark on their ear that happened. Though, for those who willingly said, I want to stay with my owner, with this family, even if I can buy my freedom, I am choosing to be a bondservant. And that's the language that Paul uses of himself and of people who follow Jesus that we are bond servants to Jesus, that he bought us with his blood when he paid the price for our sins. And the reality is when we are bond servants of Christ, no one can take us away from him, which John uh, wrote about in John chapter 10, where he quotes Jesus and Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. That is a promise from Jesus. So we are secure in Christ. The sealed are secured because they belong to Jesus. That's the great promise. The sealed are secured because we belong to Jesus. The seal of the living God protects the sealed, Christ followers, of the consequences of breaking of the breaking of the seals of the scroll and the ultimate consequences of judgment that God describes in the coming chapters of Revelation. It guarantees that as we go through the tribulations, we will make it through. We will stand. We are secure in Christ. That's what John is telling them, and that's what John is telling us. Not only that, but John wants us to know that the sealed will grow in spiritual strength. The sealed will grow in spiritual strength. John wants his readers to know that as they go through tri tribulation, as we go through tribulation, our faith will actually grow and increase because of God's presence and God's leading and God's guidance for us in the midst of this. It will strengthen our faith. You say, well, what does that look like? 
Well, the first example I think of is actually my parents. So my parents were born in 1928 in what was then part of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine. And uh, when my parents were nine years old, they lived in different villages there. But at the age of nine, the government came and took away their fathers and killed them. Uh, So they were fatherless uh, from the age of nine. And my dad told me stories of how if his mom wanted to read the Bible, she would send him outside and say, okay, I want you to look at the house from the outside and make sure there's no cracks in our curtains so no one can peek in to see if we're reading the Bible because if they catch us, we're in trouble. Or you would hear stories of them taking Bibles and ripping off the cover so if someone saw them carrying a book, they couldn't recognize what it was because it would be dangerous for them. And then they came out of that uh, through World War II and uh, you know, we, were, we were promoting our marriage prep course. My, marriage, my parents' marriage prep course was the refugee camp they met in in Berlin. Uh, that, that was their marriage prep course. You know, hiding when the bomb sirens went off at the end of the war. And they got engaged there, got married in South America, eventually came to Canada. And I see in my parents a depth of faith that I see in few North Americans because it was forged in fire. And they trust God. They came through persecution. They came through difficulty. It's an amazing thing that I see uh, in my parents' lives. And it's interesting to me because I've talked to so many people over pastoring for 30 years and they, ask, they say to me so often, well, pastor... If God loved me, why is there difficulty in my life? If God loves me, why is there struggle in my life? If God loves me, why is there disease in my life? If God loves me, why is there hardship in my life? Friends, if you read the Bible, read the New Testament, read the story of the church, read the history of the church, there's absolutely nothing in this book that would lead us to believe that if we follow God, we are exempt from struggle and tribulation. It's not in here. But somehow in North America, we have this disillusionment that we think if there's anything difficult, then somehow God is cruel. As I listen to my parents, they're 92 years old this summer. They're still both alive. They're physically in difficult shape. Their minds are good. They've been in pain for quite a few years. I never hear them say, well, God, why is this here? They might say, man, this is a hard day today. But they go, God is good. And the promises of Revelation are true which we will come to in a few minutes. You see, John says, you will make it through and your faith will strengthen in the tribulation. He also says that the sealed will reflect Jesus to the world. The sealed will reflect Jesus to the world. Now, chapter 7 doesn't talk about that, but chapter 14 of Revelation does. Revelation 14.1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, meaning Jesus, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, does that mean that it literally said, you know, lamb of God and father on the foreheads? No. This is a metaphor. This is a symbol that the Hebrews would have understood. The Jews would have understood this. And it's the whole idea that if it's saying the name is on the forehead, they're saying the character, the the personality, the thinking, the heart and mind of God is in these people who are sealed. And it is in them in such a way that onlookers who see them, who meet them, who interact with them will recognize the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's what it means. That we will reflect who God is by the way we live by the way we interact, by the way we talk. We have the character of God in us. The mind of Christ, as the book of Romans talks about. 
that it would be obvious to onlookers, that they would see our brokenness and recognize God's goodness and care and healing. They would see our sinfulness if they've known us long enough and are the transforming work of the Spirit in us. They would see us and they wouldn't say, man, are you good? They would say, man, God must be good because I know you and you're not that good. But it's the transforming work of God. That is what John is talking about. And what is that work? It's what Paul talks about when he talks about the sealing of the Spirit. Three times he talks about being sealed and it's always referring to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Twice in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In chapter 4 again of Ephesians, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but by whom... You were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption at the return of Christ. The book of Revelation. And writing to the church in Corinth, he said, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as what? As a guarantee. As Christ followers, we live with assurance. We live with the conviction of the reality that we are secure in Christ. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything he has done. The seal of God is the Holy Spirit. The seal of God is the Holy Spirit. And when it says of God, that means it comes out of God. The very life of God, his spirit, which reproduces the the character of the lamb in us. Reproduces the character of God in us. And protects us from the ultimate consequences of the great tribulation, which is judgment. We are protected from that. John is telling his readers that they will go through tribulation and they are secure in Christ. Why? Because they are sealed before the sixth seal of chapter 6 is broken. So chapter 7 follows chapter 6, but chapter 7 happens before chapter 6. Just because it's the book after, it's not what happens after. And we know that because of verse uh, 3 from chapter 7, which says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So who are these servants of God? Who will stand? Verse 4 tells us of chapter 7. John says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So who are these 144,000? It's a debated number and we don't have time to go into all the details. Otherwise you'd be here all afternoon. But I want to give you what I believe this book is telling us. So we know the number 12 is a significant biblical number. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. It's a very significant number. We also know that 144,000 is 12,000 squared times 10 cubed. That's how you get 144,000. For in the Hebrew world, to say 144,000 is not saying 144,000 specifically to the number. What it is saying is that this is a complete number. It's a very large number. Like it's giving you a picture. It's saying this is a, a large, large number of people. It's a symbolic number. John says that they came out of the tribes of Israel. Does that mean that these are ethnic Jews? Some people believe that. I don't believe that that is what he is talking about. And the reason I don't believe that is because of the next three verses. And the next three verses are a genealogy. 
right? 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, etc. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Now, for most of us, I think, at least I'll confess this, if I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm reading the Bible through in a year, you know, you're reading a fair bit, and you get to a genealogy, I just kind of skip over it. True confessions. Can't pronounce the names, don't know who, you know, I can figure out who they are, but I'm like, okay, it's just, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Okay, whatever. Let's keep reading. But do not do that with this genealogy. This genealogy actually is the crux of what's going on here in chapter 7. This is the place I want to say, don't miss this. Why? Because God is fulfilling his promises by calling people from every people group to himself. God is fulfilling his promises by calling people from every people group to himself. This genealogy has no precedent in the Bible. There's no other genealogy that reads the way this one does. Now you might be thinking, well, it's just the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not. It's actually different. John messes with it in three ways. First, he, uh, he rearranges the order. Second, he omits a name and replaces it with a different name. And third, then he reshuffles it again. How does he do that? Well, first of all, John forgot Dan. Dan was the firstborn of Jacob. He's the first in every list, in every genealogy. Dan is not here. Now, did God forget to write Dan down, telling John, you know, forget Dan? Do you ever forget your children? I don't forget the names of my kids. If you miss one of my kids, I'll correct you. And now I'm going to slip in the name of my grandson, Peter William. In fact, he and my genealogy got elevated above the three boys. Right? That's what new grandchildren, they get elevated above the existing children. So did God forget Dan? No. That's not what happened here. It's actually something else that happened. What is Dan known for? Dan is known for leading the northern tribes of Israel into idolatry. That's what he is known for. He led them astray, away from God. And instead of Dan, whose name did, gets added here, Manasseh. Well, you go, well, Manasseh is not one of the 12. No, Manasseh is a grandson. Manasseh is the son of Joseph that he had with an Egyptian wife. So you're going, wait a minute, we got a half Hebrew, half Egyptian who got put in the place of Dan? What is going on here? But God is saying, no one who leads my people into idolatry is qualified to be part of my kingdom. That's what he's telling us. Who's first now? It's Judah. Well, who's Judah? Why is Judah first? Well, you jump back to, to Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion uh, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now in Genesis, it's this metaphorical picture of this lion. He has a scepter, so he's going to rule. And John takes Genesis 49, and in Revelation chapter 5, this is what he says. Verse 5 of Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who did Pastor Ray tell us can open the seven seals? Jesus. 
So Judah, the tribe that Jesus comes from, the Messiah, is now listed first. Dan is out. Manasseh is in. Judah is first. Now, continuing on, we have Gad, Asher, and Naphtali move up the list. Well, why does that change? Who are these guys? Well, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali are, the son, are sons of Jacob, but how? Jacob had two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah. And there's a great story there. If you're following our, the, um, the Willingdon reading plan, if you started January 1, you would have read this this last week. So uh, Jacob wants to marry Rachel. He gets fooled after working for seven years for the father-in-law. And he ends up getting Leah, works another seven years, gets Rachel. So these two women are competing with each other. How are they competing with each other? By having children, having offspring to carry forward the name. And after they can no longer have children, they continue to compete because they go to Jacob and say, take our servants and have children with them. Who are their children? Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. They're concubine children. Servant children. And they're not pure Hebrews either. So now we have this picture of outsiders, of people who are not truly from that line being brought as insiders with Manasseh and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Dan being pushed out because he led people off into idolatry. And so John is saying that the people of God, the true people of Israel, of every, come from every language, every tribe, every nation, because it is faith in God that makes you a child of God. It is not your family tree. It's not what country you're from. It's not your education. It's not any other thing that you claim. It is only the, re- the revelation and salvation of Jesus. That's how you become part of the family of God. Those are the sealed who will stand. And when we say, Jesus, come and be my leader and my forgiver and my friend. Forgive my sin, remove my shame. I give you my fear. He says, you are my child, come into my family. I don't care where you've come from because I know where you're going because I'm taking you there because you are my child. Who thought genealogies could be so interesting? But that's what's going on here. See, God is fulfilling his promises and bringing hope to all the nations. That is what is happening. God is fulfilling his promises and bringing hope to all the nations. And and God's plan for Israel is now being fulfilled. Because they were never called for themselves. They were supposed to be assigned to the nations. And the promise given to Abraham is now being fulfilled. It is now being brought forth regardless of your ethnicity or your heritage or anything else. And that is why the heavenly choir now sings a new song in Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is who the 144 are. Made up of Jews and Gentiles that have been redeemed. That is a theological statement that John is making with this genealogy. And folks, the fact that Willingdon is made up of 70, 80 different nationalities is a picture of this. And we should praise God every time someone from another country, another nationality walks through our doors because it's a greater picture of heaven every time. That's what it is.
It's the beauty of that. And in verse 9, John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's the promise fulfilled of Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 12, verse 3. In you, speaking to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The new Israel, the people of God. And why do they have palm branches? Because they're worshiping, because they're celebrating. That's what you do in the Old Testament. Every time you have a festival of celebration, you are waving palm branches. And it's exhibited in verse 10 of Revelation 7, which, and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the good news, friends. It's the expression of this gathered heavenly assembly of redeemed people. The first praise is, is for full salvation, salvation from sin, from sorrow, from sadness, salvation from the trials that they have endured. That is what they are expression. Salvation that is holy God's that we cannot take credit for. It's all his doing. It's his work. Almighty on his throne. True for all. The reality of the work of the lamb. The lamb who battled evil and won. Not by conquering through a great army, but by through his death and resurrection. And it's interesting because the genealogy, when it lists 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, in the Old Testament, that's typically the way you list a genealogy when you're counting numbers of men for battle. That's how it's tip, what's typically done. These are ready to fight. But this end-time army is not one who rises up with the sword, but it's an army of martyrs who are armed with the gospel, the good news. Their cry is not a battle cry, but it is a cry of worship. Identify as they identify with Christ and triumph through Christ's death and resurrection. And the victory is now worship. And I love how all these redeemed have been, have been worshiping and then the angels join in. It's like the angels heard them worshiping and now they're responding like an antiphonal choir in verse 11. And it says, all the angel, angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Only prayer in scripture that starts with amen and ends with amen. It's like they can't find enough good words to say. Their vocabulary is limited to talk about how wonderful it is what Jesus has done. It's like amen is saying yes we agree. They begin with yes we agree. They end with yes we agree. Talking about the wonder and beauty and glory of God. And then as they talk about what these white robes mean, John says, then one of the elders addressed me in verse 13, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and been made white in the blood of the lamb. These are the redeemed people described in an image not found anywhere else in the Bible. These white robes. And it's kind of a strange picture. White but redeemed by the blood. Washed in the blood of the lamb. So how can they be white? It's a supernatural washing. It's a picture of the purification from the Old Testament. The sprinkling of animal blood for purification. In the offerings that they did. I love, excuse me, how First Peter talks about this. When he says, 
For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And then Revelation wraps up in 14 to 17, where it says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall, no long, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right? God will be in their midst. The biblical term is he will tabernacle with them, which the original language talks about. To tabernacle is to say God is in the middle of them. Note this description in verses 14 to 17. I started with talking about apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic movies. Notice this description is the exact opposite of every movie that comes out about the end times. Every movie about the end times says it's a battle, it's people uh, killing each other, there's no food, there's starvation, there's everything bad is happening. Here's the real picture of the end time. God will shelter us with his presence. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more pain, no more suffering for those who are in Christ. That's what he promises us. And the final picture, Revelation 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. You are secure in Christ if you have a relationship with him. Tribulation will happen. But your security is clear. The sealed 144,000 will be victorious in God's presence, free of all pain and suffering. In your notes, there was a question mark. It was a typo that I made. It should be an exclamation mark. The sealed 144,000 will be victorious in God's presence, free of all pain and suffering. So to summarize, we've covered a lot of territory rather quickly. What we've learned from Revelation 7 is that the judgments of God against the world are determined by his schedule. No one else's. They're determined by God's schedule. In a special way, God will protect his end time servants who go through the great tribulation so that they do not endure his wrath. He promises that. The only humans that have a place in heaven are those who have been cleansed from their sins through the death of Christ. Just to be very clear, a great multitude of redeemed persons will be in heaven. A great multitude of redeemed persons will be in heaven. Tribulation is universal, experienced both by God's people and the people of the world. And the great heavenly blessings of the tribu tribulation multitude are simply blessings all believers will experience. So, what does that mean for us today? Expect tribulation in this lifetime. Every generation, there's been tribulation at one point or another. We can expect tribulation. If you follow Jesus, that is the reality. Second, expect to come out of tribulation victorious because we are secure in him. Third, know that the blood of Jesus redeems you from your sin so that you do not have to face eternal tribulation. You don't need to live in fear like I did as a 14-year-old. That is not truth. And finally, praise God in worship that you have been redeemed.
That is the natural response. Get out your palm branches. I saw some people the other day out of palm branches in front of their house. Go cut them down. Start waving them in celebration for the reality of who Jesus is. Let's stand for prayer and then we'll move into communion. Father, this book is so rich. And at first glance, we read Revelation, we say, I don't know what's going on. But as we do some more homework, as we find out what you were saying to John and the implications for John's readers and for us today, Lord, it is this book of incredible hope, of great security in being sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, in recognizing that regardless of where we come from, As soon as we confess Jesus, as soon as we say, Jesus, be my leader and my forgiver and my friend, I want to follow you the rest of my days. Put your seal on me. Fill me with your spirit. You embrace us into your family and give us an identity. Like Manasseh and Gad and Asher and Naphtali. And, And like Benjamin and Joseph and Judah. Father, the name on our passport, the nationality on our passport does not determine whether or not we are in your family. You do. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we could respond and do for us what we need to, which is to say, Jesus, come and lead me, fill me, guide me. I am yours. Thank you for the great hope we have in you and that we are secure in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to sit down and invite those who are serving communion to come and uh, join me. As we prepare ourselves for communion, really all of Revelation chapter 7 is this, is this beautiful preparation as we recognize the, the wonder and glory of what Jesus has done and how God has sealed his people. And then Jesus left us this, be- these, this beautiful, simple way to remember him, the bread and the juice. So if you are a Christ follower, if you have said, Jesus, Forgive me, forgive my sins, remove my shame, conquer my fear, fill me with your spirit. If that's how you identify yourself, you're invited to participate in communion. If that's not the place that you are are comfortable declaring yourself to be, just let the elements pass by. You're welcome to be here and, and, uh, and just let them pass by. This is about your relationship with God. This is not about any rules about the church. This is about you being honest with, with Jesus. And so make that decision. As we pass the elements, just hang on to them until everyone has them and we will participate uh, together. I just want to read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, which is everything we just talked about. A glorious celebration that day. 